Welcome to the Hashtag Call to Scene podcast, the show focused on the strategic disruption of the status quo in technical organizations, communities, and events. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Hashtag Call to Scene podcast. I'd like to welcome my guest, who I, it was, it's kind of been a maze getting around to you, not amazing, but a maze. Because I backed into you through backing into something else, through backing into something else. So with that said, I'd like to have Sasha introduce herself. Hi, my name is Sasha Judge. Uh, I run a family office in New Zealand where we invest in early stage tech companies. We have a nonprofit foundation. Uh, And around that work over the last few years, I've started getting involved in speaking um, both at conferences and in-house at companies around improving diversity and inclusion in the tech sector. All right. We always start with why is it important to cause a scene and how are you causing a scene? Uh, Why is it important to cause a scene? I think in this context, um, we all work in an industry that is essentially in crisis. Um, The tech sector is experiencing unprecedented wealth and unprecedented access to power. Uh, And I think as both, you know, internationally and nationally, we're having to grapple with the fact that these companies, privately owned, in some cases, companies are building products and platforms that have an enormous impact on us uh, and with very, very little accountability. And so um, it's really important for us to wrestle with the ethics of that of how these businesses are built and run, and increasingly wrestle with the complete lack of diversity and inclusion in these companies. So that's why I think it's important that we cause a scene. How am I causing a scene? Um, Up until a few years ago, I couldn't. I had a job, um, I was a partner in a law firm, and that meant that um, I was very, very constrained about the things that I could do or say publicly, because I had responsibilities to our firm's clients um, and to my professional career. Uh, And when I left that role, it really freed me up to uh, be a lot more honest publicly about my own journey um, in tech and to um, sort of claim a lot of things that I had um, been doing in private and really to take the stage and talk more openly about what I saw going wrong around me and how I thought we could make a change. Okay, so as I said earlier, I kind of backed into... Sasha through a maze and it was about fandom that's how I uh, saw two of your um, speeches your talks on um, fandom and this is like the third or fourth episode I've done on fandom so I want to talk about the your other work because you made some incredible points already but I really want to get into this fandom thing first because you tie another string into the thing. So talk, tell the audience what your, these talks that I've seen about, um, as I told you, and I, I should have brought them up um, so I can know the exact name, but you know the freaking exact name of them. Um, so, I mean, I've given two talks um, that are... It's two about, of them. Yeah. yeah and one, one of them is about hiring for diversity and one of them is about improving inclusion in your teams. But both of them come at those topics from the lens of fandom. And 
that's quite a personal um I just okay sorry I just had an aha because you talk about it from one direction that's right, right? okay yes I listen to so much guys that I have to um um let me just drop guys because I don't want to be exclusive y'all <laughs> because I, and so I forget who I but a, yes you were the one direction exp- explanation go ahead right yeah and so that was a really interesting personal journey for me because my experience of technology um is is entirely driven through my experiences in fandom I got onto the internet very very early by New Zealand standards um I got the internet in the home from the first time it was available here, which was sort of in the early 90s. Uh, And my first experiences online were fanish experiences. I went online to find other people talking about the things that I loved. And so that was TV shows and books and movies. And I experienced these communities of people all over the world who were talking about the same things. And for someone who as a teenager was pretty nerdy uh, and who my, my public persona at high school and university was, was about trying to fit in, um, you didn't want to reveal the things that you really cared about. You wanted to just do the, do the work of, of being the kind of person who, who fitted into those social spaces. But online, you could find communities of people who were into the same things as you. So right from the start, my experience of the internet was experience of Spanish spaces. And so that was Usenet groups early on, then Yahoo mailing lists, then onto LiveJournal, and then eventually onto Tumblr and Archive of Our Own. And, and all the way through finding these communities of people who loved the same TV shows and the same books, the same movies, cared about the same things. Um, and one of the things that fans do online is engage in what we call transformative work, right? So you take a book or a TV show or a movie and you want more, you want more of it. You want to know what the characters did after that scene. You want to know what happened when the people in the West Wing left the White House. You want to know what happened after the last episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And so online, fans uh, engage in that transformative work. They draw the art and they write the stories. Uh, And you also want to see more of yourself in the stories on screen. And so that means you transform the characters. You might gender swap them or race swap them or put um, characters together in relationships that never happened on screen. And so it's an enormously creative space, but it's also about sort of bending the popular culture that we're given into new shapes. Um, and so that was always my experience online was in Spanish spaces. But I never talked about any of that, right? Because it wasn't cool. It wasn't something that you admitted in public. You didn't talk about writing fan fiction or spending all your time online doing this um, quite stigmatized activity. Uh, and so it's, it took me a really long time to sort of own up to that publicly. And the One Direction stuff came about because, um, and you can see in the talk, it started as a bit of a joke um, and my friends were teasing me about One Direction. I didn't know anything about the band. I didn't know any of their songs, didn't know who any of the members of it were. But the more I engaged in this kind of um, faux trolling with my friends about it, the more I realised that we have this terribly gendered response to the things that young women get excited about. And uh, it doesn't matter what it is, a boy band, a movie like Twilight, anything that we can kind of dismiss as being something that young women are fired up about, we tend to. Whereas the things that young men get excited about, that's acceptable, Mm -hmm. right? And what I realized was all of these young women in these Spanish spaces online, and they are predominantly young women, I don't mean to be completely exclusive, but the stats show that it's the majority of young women, 
um, they're doing the Spanish work and it's being ignored. Um, and this is their introduction to technology. Mm. And so I realized that I was spending all this time trying to work out how to engage young women in technology. You know, we have all these sort of blunt solutions like coding courses and boot camps and so on. And I realized we were overlooking the fact that these young women were already engaged in technology. They're online 24 seven mm -hmm. and they are teaching each other quite technical skills, how to make gifts and to cut video and um, very, very strong social media um, organization, community management, moderation. Um, they teach each other CSS so that they can make their Tumblr themes look more beautiful. They're teaching each other ways to hack Tumblr so that it does what they want it to. They're teaching each other these technical skills, but they don't see themselves as technical and they don't see these skills as a pathway into a career because we have this narrative that the way you become successful in tech is to be a white dude in a hoodie who's hacking around at home, making their apps and building their websites. With, so a, with a CS degree. That's right. So we're ignoring all of this activity because it's done in service of something we don't care about. You know, it's, and so these these young women keep it to themselves. But it's interesting that you just saw there are two things that I want to talk about, because you just said that um, they're done in service of things we don't care about. Let's be honest. Half the shit that these white dudes are doing, we don't care about that either. We, we absolutely don't care about it. It's the stupidest thing. on the, How many scooter um, 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 things do we need on the side of the road right now? I don't know what it looks like in New Zealand, but downtown Atlanta has you can go one block and there are five scooter companies on one block on both sides of the streets with at least two scooters. There's Atlanta's a car city. So I don't know who's scooting around this much, um, but there is definitely not a need for that. And, and even um, a lot of the, the, yes, I'm a fan of star Wars. Yes. I like um, star Trek and, but that's not needed. That's not necessary. I mean, that's, that's fandom. Um, and it's interesting how we attribute, the things that women do, girls do, is trivial. But as any asinine thing that a man does, it has some kind of value. But the other thing I wanted to bring up is I wanted to draw the line back to an episode that came before you with Virginia Eubanks, and she's talking about um, her book, Automating Inequality. And she talks about, she was, because we were talking about the poor, and she had this assumption, you know, why aren't these poor people, we, we created this, this, you know, this computer lab, why aren't these poor people engaging in tech? Why are they scared of tech, blah, 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 blah. But when they finally got out of their way and asked these women, these women have been engaging in tech. What they found, though, is the tech was, obtrusive. The tech was used um, to spy on them because, you know, if they're getting food stamps, if they're getting um, any kind of public assistance. So they have, they've been engaging in tech and been, in, 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 as you said, these young women. Um, yet tech is not, again, in another situation, I mean, a different situation, but the same thing. No one has used the tech to bring these women in. It's only you've been used to isolate and track them. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of that is to do with just not having a variety of people in the room, right? And this is, so this has been my work to move on, is like, you can talk about the pipeline. So, so when I was thinking about it in that context, like why aren't we acknowledging that these young women are into technology? This is our pipeline. But the pipeline only gets you so far, right? Yes. Because mm -hmm. um, then you need to build companies that include a diverse range of people so that they don't leave as soon as they get exactly. there. Exactly. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's the, the second talk that you will have seen, Superfan, is about how we build teams that have trust and safety and, and, and include people so that these companies have a good foundation if people want to stay. 
And why is that important? It's important because if we keep building technology with teams that are just full of white men, and in some cases white women, but very few other um, groups mm-hmm. represented, then we keep making these mistakes because there's no one in the room to say, this is how this product or this platform will be used against me and my community. You know, this is how I would feel if this um, feature was implemented. You know, there's a great example just last week. Uh, it was a headline about how Audi and Disney had um, released a virtual reality, you know, the VR headsets, an immersive experience for being in a car. And they were saying, this would be great. When you're in your Uber ride, you can be riding a virtual roller coaster or whatever. And of course, all the women online went, why on earth would we want to be in a stranger's car and, mm-hmm. and deprive ourselves of our senses? Like that is already a, a space where we have to worry about our safety and you want us to put a blindfold on? Like, <laughs> where Not are you going? a blindfold, but you know, when you're doing that, that all your sensors are in, involved. So yeah. you're hearing, I mean, everything is, so you just want me to be, not, that's a blindfold, you put me in a box. <laughs> <laughs> Right. A box that's not, it's not just a, bo- a, a, a blacked out box. It's a box with some shit going on around me. So I got to focus on that. And, and that, is right. so, that is so true because, um, um, so the author of Technically Wrong was on here, Sarah, and she mm-hmm. talked about how one of the issues is everybody has this, this idea that tech for good, we're solving these problems and no one ever looks at the pro- the 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 problems or the challenges that these products and services can cause. And then I have um, Cindy Gallup on, and she spoke specifically to this, and she says, until we get the people to talk, until the people who can be, like you just said, negatively impacted at the table when these things are created, you're going to continue to create the things that are um, that are negative, uh, that are harming, and it's always marginalized people. It is always us. It is always the the most vulnerable in the community, and you see that with Facebook when the research has just come out. So everybody was like, "Oh, Cam- Cambridge Analytica, okay, that was a shit show." Mm-hmm. And then you say, "Okay, the then you find out about the rushing, um, the Russia and the the ads." Okay, oh, there we go again. But then you get the research that says that there were Russian ads that were specifically targeting black women's voices. Yeah. And you're like, hey, and, and there were, have been black women on, on social media long before I got there that was saying this was happening, but you ignored them. Yeah. And it's, you know, like I'm quite an optimistic person. I like to believe the good in people. I don't always attribute malice to these. Exactly. No, it's just ignorance. (laughs) And there's nobody in the room saying to them, hold up, stop. (laughs) And part of that is about not genuinely not having diverse teams. And Mm -hmm. part of it is even if you have diverse teams, not creating enough psychological safety that anyone feels they can raise a flag and say, wait, I have a differing opinion. I have a different lived experience. I can tell you how this is going to go wrong because if your job relies on you going along to get along, all of those things, then you're not going to feel safe to say, I can see that. And that has been my issue with all these companies where we're bringing them in, but they're leaving because you have not created a psychological safe space. No one wants to be, first of all, marginalized people are used to being treated like shit. So it's not, they're, they're, they're used to saying, you know what, this, I will go somewhere that makes less money and I'll feel better. So it's not the money. So you can't incentivize us with that if it's a shit show, unless we're really in a dire strait where the money thing is it. 
we will go with less money just to be in an environment that is emotionally safe and has psychological safety. I say this all the time, and um, it's quite interesting because I look back on my life and I say, when I was younger, the things I wanted in a, in a, in a mate, in a man, oh my God, were so surface. <laughs> we're so <laughs> surface. Now, psychological, emotional safety. That I can do, I can do on my own, everything else. I need, that is essential for me. And for me, when I dug into the, the science around that stuff, what was really interesting was um, one of the problems is when you create a diverse team, achieving psychological safety becomes more difficult mm-hmm. because you can't just assume that everyone wants to be treated the way you yep. yourself want to be treated. Mm-hmm. So everyone's expectations of safety are going to be high. And that's the thing about, we should no longer be expecting assimilation, but integration. Because you can, yeah. when, when you, this, the, the company culture should be that every new person comes in, changes our culture. That's right. And <laughs> Sam May puts it, you know, you shouldn't be looking for culture fit. You should be yes. looking for culture add, right? Yep. You, mm-hmm. have, you have to keep adding people who have a perspective that you don't yourself have. Mm-hmm. If you're doing that, you know, eventually, you know, you're not going to make it perfect, yes. but you are at least increasing the possibility that when you discuss a new product or a new feature or a new service, there's going to be someone in the room who will be able to tell you how that can be misused or where it's going wrong. It's so funny because before I even got in tech, I, um, I used to have this analogy because I was doing a lot of like self-awareness work. And I just really understood when people say, oh, there are two sides to every story. I'm like, no, there are more than two sides to every story. There's a side to every story to every person who witnessed that story. And I use this as an example. So if there is a, a you're in a figure drawing class. Um, and there's a nude model, and all of us are in a circle around this new model. I can only draw specifically what the part of that human body that I can see. Anything yeah. else is just imagined, or I can pull from what I think I know or whatever, but I don't have that perspective. Yeah, and so, right. and this is what it gets really mad. And this is what people, that's why always let's get comfortable with being uncomfortable because it gets really messy. It gets really messy. But when you put together all those different perspectives of that, um, of everyone who's sitting around drawing that human figure, you get a complete, oh my God, it's so beautiful. You see the different nuances, the shading that you didn't see. You see, there's so many things. So we need to embrace this. But again, this is coming from a person who systematically has no power. So for me, it's easy to say, hey, give me power. I get that. I get that those with power are just like, oh, hell no. Um, No, no, no. This makes me uncomfortable. What you're doing is is highlighting, okay, let's be honest, that I'm mediocre most times. I'm just going to be honest because you didn't have to do much to get there. And um, you knew somebody, you learned the job. You, as forever, um, I saw just on Twitter the day somebody was, they were talking about um, qualifications for, um, <laughs> for tech. And, um, and somebody tweeted, yeah, yeah, you know, um, surprisingly, you know, I don't even have a degree. I just got in that and I looked and I retweeted. I'm like, not surprising that you're a white cis male. That's not a surprise. Not a surprise <laughs> at all. And he had to say, oops, you know, it's like you, when, you, when you've never examined yourself in the space, you don't examine yourself in the space. You just are the default. And I think that's where we have an advantage because you're right that there is a bit of pushback going on right now, has been for the last couple of years as 
um, white men are having to examine their privilege in this space and how they've gotten to where they've gotten to. Um, and, and so I think there is a bit of resistance. There's a bit of, well, hang on, why, you know, why do we need to start doing this? Surely we just want the best person for the job. It's meritocracy, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and the, the advantage we have, of course, is that this is a very data-driven business. Yes. And data tells us over and over again, and I love the way that you've been expressing it lately, which is inclusion is a risk management issue. Yes. Like, this, is, um, this is real. Your businesses will fail. Your reputations will be damaged. You are going to make a mistake which will be fatal to your business success unless you change. And all of the data tells us both on the negative and the positive side, your business will be more successful yes. financially. You will, you know, you grow faster, all of these things. The data is unassailable. So we're quite fortunate in that sense is we're not just trying to fight this battle to say, do it because you should do it. And that's, and that's, oh my God. I, I, yeah, I, I leave the moral thing out because that's not a question. Everybody has comes at the, tab the table with different morals. So we're not even going to have that. I, I tried to leave the politics out, but I realized I can't do that. Um, so I, but I, I, I approach it all though from a business perspective, from a business strategy perspective. This is how a black woman like myself can get in the conversation and not be dismissed because I'm saying data, I'm talking about data, I'm talking about things, metric, metrics, and I'm not, this is not, about, it's not personal. And this yeah. is when, and they, they can't say, you know, they try to call me an angry black woman, but who gives a shit? But they can't say I'm emotional about this. This is just, I'm telling you, either you get this right and you're going to make mistakes, you own them, or you don't, and you see what's happening now. Uh, it's, it's every day. Yeah. And I know some diversity and inclusion activists uh, don't agree with that approach. They're like, look, I don't want to talk to you about return on investment. You should just be doing this because it's the right thing to do. And I, look, I understand that argument. My experience in the spaces where I have been talking about this is that it's not compelling. These people want to believe they're good people already Telling them that they're not is These not. People think they good, not want to believe. They believe they're good people. They don't see that they're doing wrong. Yeah, yeah. giving them a framework that's data driven that shows them yep. the change. And importantly, I think this is why I really like the work that Project Include is doing mm -hmm. because it gives them a framework of things to do. They want to yeah. practical. They want to yep. get their hands around it. They want to try some things. Once they figure out they, they they they've been going that way, what what happens is the shame and guilt gets them nowhere. You need to be, they need something to actualize on. And this is where, okay, I get the, the do it because it's the right thing to do. It, I'm going to say, I, I, I totally disagree with that because particularly from a marginalized group, what you think is right has always harmed me. So I don't, that, that's not going to work for me. That's not because it's the right thing to do or the moral thing to do. Again, you and I may not have the same moral structure. So, or core values or whatever. But when I talk to you about, I tell people all the time, as a leader of organization, I don't, you don't have to believe in this shit. I could care less. But if you look at the numbers and put it in place and get the hell out of the way and let yeah. put the systems in place, you will start believing when that return on investment comes. Because this yeah. is not about them. We're creating products and services that are harming a global market. And we ought to be better stewards for the global community. And also, I think that the business framework gives us a way to assess whether these companies are taking it seriously or not. Because you can make a lot of noise about improving diversity and inclusion. Which and they often do. <laughs> but if it's not a business priority, if there aren't targets around it, if it's not Money. in the budget, <laughs> yeah, it's not in the budget. And this is, you know, this is, I've said this several times. You tell me exactly how much value you attribute yes. to something. Well, you tell you, me how much yeah. to pay for it. Yes. Right? And, um, and so until you can see that it is a, a fixed target, and some companies are reluctant to do that. They're like, hell, we think it's an important priority. 
but it's not a it's not an okay after yeah. the quarter. There yeah. isn't a favorable way to assess whether they're succeeding or not in improving that situation. Then you know it's not a priority because if it was any other business goal, exactly. And then it speaks also to something you just said. Why is why does inclusion and diversity is this is not nonprofit? Why is this? Where is where is all? Why does it have to have this negative stigma? Why does why does my and this is why it's hard. This is why people don't put money towards it, or why people like me are are having to constantly talk about I need to get paid for people to understand you're gonna pay me, you're gonna pay me well because we have people out there. And again, you know, you do your your thing, but when you do that, recognize that this is a community of people who are working on this. And when you say, oh, we shouldn't be getting paid for this, you're com- you're commit you're communicating to the outside people who don't think we should get paid for this anyway, for people who believe they need to be paid and need to be paid because I don't have the privilege of having a husband or a system or a family wealth that could take care of me. I have to do this on my own. And I recognize that because I've created a space for myself that's very unique. And I recognize that my, and I say this all the time and I have no problem with this. My prices are set the way they are for two reasons. There's a bullshit tax. I'm always having to convince somebody there's so much emotional and psychological labor in trying to get somebody on board. Mm-hmm. Um, but equally or more important to me and my legacy is there are people coming behind me who will be doing this work and you, they need, there needs to be an expectation that they will be paid. Yeah. And they will be paid mm-hmm. well. Because you get paid well as a developer, as a product manager, as all these other things. Why shouldn't I get paid that and more because I'm making your whole work environment better. I'm not doing one thing. And that's not just true for external consultants or external work. It's true internally as yes, well. Like, yes. Emotional labor um, or the actual labor on the members of marginalized groups within your organization to get them to like, oh, can you run the yep. LGBTQ mm-hmm. allies group for us? Can you, you know, um, be part of the recruitment team because we want people outside the organization to see that we have black folks on staff. All of that is extra labor that you're being asked to perform. We're having a photo today. Can you dress up <laughs> so you can be the... <laughs> right, so you can be the token person yes. that, that proves that we're not a, a terrible place to work. Exactly. Um, and, you know, that that's true across organizations. I mean, it was true when I was in law. You know, I was always having to front up at recruitment because they wanted to show that they had partners who were young and who were women. And so, mm-hmm. so, you know, it's not unique to tech. But, but that is all additional labor that you're often not remunerated for financially and should be. And the thing that I, but the, the, where I am optimistic and you just spoke specifically to that, the issues tech is having it inherited because we're still using models from other industries in the past. And once tech gets this right, these other industries will have to change. So we have a, a, the opportunity to impact how um, labor relations, how um, sexual harassment, all of that in the in in industries like law and medicine and 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 in 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 entertainment and all these different things because we touch everything i'll say this all the time that we need to stop acting like we're hired we're still making widgets we need to be creating knowledge and to create knowledge you need people who have psychological safety yeah it's so true and i mean i when i left the law i had several people say to me why are you doing this work to improve the tech sector? And you didn't really seem that interested in doing it when you were in law. You know, I wasn't particularly an advocate for changing the legal profession while I was in it. 
And, and my answer to that was always, I feel like tech is capable of change. It's yes. still a relatively young sector. Um, the, the young men who built this industry um, generalizing wildly, but they tended to be people who were themselves not treated that well at high school, you know, nerds shall inherit the earth and so on. And so when you point out to some of them that they are now oppressing other marginalized groups, most of them are horrified by that idea. Everyone in the hashtag call the scene community shares the same common beliefs based on a set of four specific guiding principles. One, Tech is not neutral, nor is it apolitical. Two, intention without strategy is chaos. Three, lack of inclusion is a risk and increasingly a crisis management issue. And lastly, but most importantly, four, we must prioritize the most vulnerable. To find out more about the guiding principles and adding them to your Twitter profile banner, please visit hashtag causeascene.com. Other marginalized groups, most of them are horrified by that idea. No, they want to be better and they want to change. And so there's a malleability there that I think um, gives us oh, yes. yes. a sense of hope. But I think it is a two-way street because I think some of the more traditional um, spaces have things that tech abandoned that, they, that tech needs to take back. So labor relations, you just mm-hmm. mentioned, is a really important one. So, you know, tech workers were like, we don't need unions. We don't even need to be employees. It's a gig economy. And I think now we're grappling with the idea that that's wrong and labor relations does have an important role to play. And I think ethics is the other big space where that's true. So if you want to be a, a bridge building engineer rather than a, a software engineer, you know, you're going to make some bridges, then you have to be a professional. You have to qualify. Yes. You have to do and it's the same with law, it's the same with medicine. Uh, and so as part of your study, you have to study ethics. You have to be part of a professional organization. You have professional duties and responsibilities. Yeah, I um, spoke at, um, at um, last year's Scotland JS, and that was my topic. It was about um, us adopting a, adopting a Hippocratic Oath. Um, right, right. <laughs> because, so I think there's things yeah. to be learned in both directions, yeah. right? yeah. Well, that that happens when your your motto is move fast and break things. Yeah, you know, that happens. And then you look back 10 years and you're like seeing all the debris behind you and you're pulling that all into the future because now you're having to deal with things because you never stopped to evaluate. And that's another it's that's another when you're talking about business. Um, Another thing we've left behind. Well, two things. Business in the past were actual businesses. Um, you had policies, procedures, and processes in place to run a business. Now people have a product or service and they think that's a business. No, that's a freaking product or service. It's nothing else. So you haven't thought about anything but how to iterate your product, how to make it better, how to put new bells and whistles on it. And then when you get employees, you don't even know, even when you meet employees, how to even evaluate how are we going to do the employment selection process. You've never even thought about these things. You've never thought about onboarding. You've never thought about um, how does, um, outside of a style guide or somebody, everybody working on something in GitHub, you haven't thought about how we would collaborate on different things. None of these things are because, and that makes a business. And those are the things, so we don't need business plans like we used to, because those are totally, I mean, by the time you create one, they're obsolete in tech, but there are business um, fundamentals that we're missing. I see, and this is where I talk about, when I talk about the, 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 um, the the scooters and all this it's like they're to be an effective business leader 
you have to understand business. And it's not about product and development, um, product and service development. That is a part of business. This is why um, Procter & Gamble could make any damn thing because they had the business structure for it. And you see it now, and I talk about you see it now in Amazon and Walmart. These are not product or services companies. These are logistics companies. It doesn't matter what the hell they sell. They can pop, pull things in and out because they have a system in place that doesn't matter what the hell comes across their conveyor belt for them Yeah, <laughs> because they yeah, have logistics. I think some of that was reactionary. Like I think um, some of these young companies, there was a deliberate pushback. Like we've got a flat structure. We don't believe in fancy business titles. We don't need an HR department. You know, we're disrupting what it means to be at work. Uh, and I think that the, we realize that that's crazy. Of course you need an HR department. The only people who don't are people who are in positions of power. Um, that's what I was know. about to say. For all those things that you're throwing away, the flat system in it, that, that's about privilege. That's, yes. That is about you feel safe in the environment, not the people who might be harmed feeling safe in the environment. Yeah. And one of the best examples I saw of that, because it was really fashionable for a time for startup um, founders and so on to have silly business titles. You know, you weren't the... CMO, you were like the chief firefighting officer or whatever the, you know, it was kind of, you had a comedy title for your role. And I saw a great um, series of tweets from a woman who was saying, you know, that's privilege too. I can't go to a professional yes. conference yes. with a comedy business card. I'm already trying to establish myself in that space. Mm -hmm. I need people to know that I'm the vice president of engineering, yeah. not chief slide maintainer or whatever <laughs> decided this fun you know yeah all the, yeah, exactly. yeah yeah and um, I, I mean i think the the move fast and break things um one of the ways that manifests itself is that these these companies are often formed very quickly as you say around a product or service someone comes up with an idea they gather a couple of people around them it's usually people they've worked with before mm -hmm. because that's who you can call up and say um, I don't have any money. I don't know if this is a thing yet, but can you knock me out a prototype of this? Can you mock up some designs for this? Let's see where this goes. And the, the people that you can impose on for that kind of free labor in the, or, or subsidized labor in the early days are your friends, people you know from previous projects. And they tend to be people who look like you and have... Oh, I always say it reminds me of a frat house. They've just taken the frat... They've just... They've started these projects in college and just removed the location, but it's still the frat mentality. Yeah. And the problem is culture beds in so early that by the time you're up to yeah. 10 white and a dog on your team page, then it's very, very difficult to convince someone from a marginalized community to join that team because mm -hmm. already signals that you're sending are so monolithic that it's like, well, why would I want to be the first woman yes. or the first black person or the first whatever that, you know, that, why would I want to be that in your team? And so you set up the structure fast early because you think that's how you're going to get to your first fundraising round or whatever, but you're laying um, this diversity debt in place, like technical debt that then becomes really time consuming yes. and expensive to reverse engineer or overcome. Yeah, one of my company, one of my clients is um, they were start a small startup, profitable, um, growing intentionally. They had the intention because they even hired a diversity person and went from three to ten white people. And they don't, and they're like, I don't know how we did this, you know, um, exactly. And so it's about now. Let's I know how. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, tell, well, tell us how they did that. They did that by hiring people who looked like them, who came to them easy. 
because in the early days, it's like, we need someone to fill this role. And maybe you tweet about it. Maybe you check the job description up um, on your Twitter feed or you write a Medium post, but only people in your community are seeing it. And you're not doing the work of going out to find candidates who are in groups that you wouldn't necessarily encounter. So you're not turning up to the meetup groups for underrepresented communities. You're not going to coding spaces where there are people that you've never encountered before. And you're not importantly pushing out to your network and saying, don't recommend me someone I already know. You know, recommend me someone that I've never met or never encountered. And that's hard work. It takes time. And and it's not just the put, you haven't pushed out into these communities. If the, the ones that have, you've got some, you got some negative feedback and you quit because you're, the assumption is that you white person comes into a space and you need to be accepted. And these communities don't trust you because they have very good reason not to trust you. And then you're like, oh, we try. And they just don't know that you, then you keep going back. You don't stop. <laughs> if your, your kid is trying to learn how to walk, you don't just say, eh, try it at one time. You're done, dude. You're going to be on your ass the whole time. Um, and I think we've seen that with conferences. Like I think we've, we've almost got there now. Like it's pretty rare for you to see a conference throw up a lineup. Well, not I was about to say, come on, Sasha. <laughs> I mean, just I just looked at. Did you just did you just not see the CVS lineup um, for political people <laughs> for political journalists? And then that. someone said, then some guy says he like brought, people are interested in journalists. Yes. <laughs> oh, so outrageous. Um, oh. Yeah, but I think we've seen, like, conferences, I think, are a good microcosm of that because for a yeah. long time, conference organ- organizers would say, well, we asked a lot of women, but none of them were available. Yes. Mm-hmm. And that they seem to think that that was enough. And it's like, no, you've got to... Well, the, R- the ROI on that is now hitting them. And see, this is why I want to talk about that. We need to talk about the metrics because and people are saying, oh, I'm not coming to your conference because I don't see anybody that looks like me. And so, yeah, you have these conference organizers scrambling if this wasn't something that was an initial intent for them, trying to figure yeah. out, hey, um, I, I, do you know anybody, blah, 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 um, yeah. when... I don't see anyone who looks like me. I don't see a code of conduct, so yes. I don't know if I'm going to feel safe. There's no a code of conduct that is not copied and pasted again. Yes. Um, and you know, there's no information about the accessibility of the yep. venue. I don't know if I'm even going to be able to get into the room. You yes. know, all of those things send signals to um, community groups that that it's not going to be yeah. safe. And that's why, and that's why I love about tech because we are touching everything. We at at some point, everybody in tech is going to realize we have no choice. If you want to be successful, you have to be diverse and you have to. Uh, and this is why I love def- defining terms. So I always say diversity um, because people interchange them for some reason. And diversity is all about just variety. It's just like having a box of four crayons. I'm not artistic enough to have four crayons and make a masterpiece. But give me that Crayola box of 64. I can make some shit happen. It may be ugly, but it's going to be colorful. Um, And that's diversity. Inclusion is what you just talked about, about psychological safety. And no one can tell me that I feel included. I have to, you create a space and I tell you if I feel included in that space. Um, And then people get those words and and it's like, no, those are very definite, specific, different words. And you need both. (laughs) Because it makes no sense to have a whole bunch of people um, from different lived experiences sitting around a table if no one feels safe enough to communicate their lived experience. Now you're just wasting, you've done a whole bunch of, spent a whole bunch of money on recruiting and we know how much that costs and you're not getting anything. And then we talk about tacit, um, tacit knowledge and, 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 um, when, and, and um, explicit knowledge. Explicit knowledge was that, that um, build, a, build a widget. I give you a manual, this is how you do your job. 
this is not how we work anymore. It's tacit knowledge. I, as an individual, am giving something. I learn from it. I, it's like deep learning. I learn from it. I learn how to make, you know, what the mistakes are. And if I don't pass that along, then there's a missed opportunity with the, for the organizational leaders to leverage that for competitive advantage and differentiation. And definitely if I get pissed off and leave and I take that with me and not sharing it. And I think the other thing that we're sort of wrestling with now, and I know you've had a couple of episodes talking about this, but, but a lot of what we're building now has much more wide-reaching consequences because we're building algorithms and machine learning systems that will survive whatever current implementation we're designing them for and will be used for other purposes and so on. And so if we keep building these and baking in the biases of the default group that, that starts out making them, then it's very difficult to dial that back because these algorithms become kind of a black box and no one knows how they work. It's just that, oh, well, the algorithm says, right? And so unless you're kind of wrestling with that really early on, then these things start to persist and um, and sort of take on a life of their own. Yeah, you and I can have a conversation. I can say, hey, this is why you shouldn't, it might not be wise to do that. But once, I can't reason like that with a computer. Once you put, and this is where my, my issue with and yes, it is. It's going to be um, at the first quarter of the year, and I'm talking about Stack Overflow again, guys. Yes, this is why I'm always talking about Stack Overflow because um, their survey three years in a row, and I would love to see the results of this coming survey, um, have shown that 93% of their respondents are white males because those are the only between the ages of 18 and 34 because those are the only people that really feel safe in in contributing to that. So what happens is, yeah, you have underrepresented and marginalized people going to Stack Overflow, but they're not asking questions. Um, Or or they ask that one question, they get a shitty answer, they don't go back. So they end up copying and pasting code, which replicates that bias that's already in that code from only white people contributing to code and, and, and knowledge on this platform. And then it, it get, they get me when they say, well, this wasn't the intent. Who cares about intention? It's about impact. People need to understand this is not, again, we're not creating widgets where my job was to create, put the tire on the car at GM. That is not what we're creating. We're creating things that we put, I don't care if, if somebody buys my car and they're a doctor, so they use it for um, getting back and forth to work. If they're, uh, if, if, it's, if they're a speed racer and they use it to, 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 um, to, to um, race cars. Um, if they are Uber and they use it to transport people, it's still a fucking car. That doesn't change. But what's happening is we're creating products and services that we may have an idea of how this platform is going to work, but the customer base comes and they start using it differently. And that we need to be able to shift with. We need to be able to morph and put policies in place and things in place so that whatever, however the customer base is using it, we are making sure or ensuring that we've done our jobs to create something that's safe for everybody. And, and all of that comes back to business priorities. You know, there's a lot of talk about um, the use of social media platforms to harm marginalized communities. And, and the answer from these platforms is always, you know, content moderation is a difficult problem. You know, it's hard to stop the Nazis. And yet our our own eyes can tell us that they find it extremely easy to stop the spread of copyrighted content, for example. Yes, especially on on YouTube. Yeah, (laughs) you you have somebody's music in there. It's gone. It's gone. And during the Olympics, if you tried to post a GIF of a scene from the Olympics, it was down within seconds. Yeah, that tells you about exactly what's the priority. And the priority are those those people with the money who are saying you need to, you better, not need, you better protect my copyright. And you, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. And so it becomes a priority. It's like they're not going to mess with the with the networks or the studios. Yeah. So, you know, so it becomes a business priority. They work out how to do it. They implement it. But protect, protecting marginalized communities is not a business priority. And we can see that across the board. Because and and then the, the narrative of free speech. No, free speech is protected by the federal government, not by private companies. Let's not do that. And then you, you do something and they say um, you report something. But no, this is not. How are you able to tell me what is not harmful to me? Yeah, and it's, uh, the free speech debate is an interesting one because I think, again, um, you know, I don't think it comes from a place of malice, but I think that the white men who have built these companies um, firmly believe in the idea that, um, you know, a, a debate of ideas is better than suppressing an idea. It's better to discuss these things and get them out in the open, and if we did that, then the good ideas would win. You know, mm-hmm. sunlight is the best disinfectant and so on. Uh, and, and I think they genuinely believe that. And I think it's only been in the last couple of years that we've got more and more evidence um, at very, very public levels. I mean, the evidence has always been there, but, yeah. but very public examples of um, at how that's not true. How yeah. having these kinds of debates and, and offering platforms to these kinds of dangerous ideas produces real world harm. And I think okay. that's what we're trying to grapple with now. So I think, again, I don't think it's coming from a place of malice, but it's I coming from- It's just from ignorance. It's just straight ignorance. And it remi- it's, it's, it's the thing I said, until we, as a community, learn to prioritize the needs of the most vulnerable mm-hmm. over the privilege. Because mm-hmm. if you prioritize the need, going back when you're talking about code of conduct and all these things at conferences, if the most vulnerable people feel safe, everybody feels safe. Yeah. And this is the shift. So it's no longer about I get what I want because I'm a white male or I'm, I'm privileged. It's, it's not your space to have by yourself. That's, yeah. that's, that's, that's the thing. It's, it's about people don't want to share. It's, it's, they've never had to share. And so now me coming in and saying, this is not, we've got to change this. They're like, what the fuck? There was nothing wrong with it. Yeah, because before, and I say this in my talks, you were never the expert. You were just the only one with the mic. <laughs> and now... Point. Yeah, and now I have a mic, and as long as I have an internet connection and a and a Twitter account or Instagram, I get to say what the hell I want to. You yeah. b- before you were the only one that had the mic. Yeah, and it's it, you know it's interesting because it's been a real journey for me. I was a terrible feminist when I was in my twenties because as a white woman, I was able to succeed in the spaces that I was in, mm-hmm. uh, and so you know, to my mind. He's like, well, if I can do this, then you can too. What are you complaining about? You know, to, to other white women and to everybody else. It's like, it's not that hard. And it took me so long to realize that just because I felt safe in a space didn't make that safe space. It, you know, like it, it just wasn't, it wasn't true. And I'm glad you brought that up. I'm glad you brought, what made you, what made you realize that? Um, I think over time, just through my professional progress, it gets tougher the further up you go, you know? Wow. And, mm-hmm. So for um, you, for, so for you, where for me, it, I can't even get in the door. You can get in the door, but you can't go any higher. And as soon as I started to encounter the very resistance that all the other marginalized groups were already experiencing, I was like, well, hang on, what's going on here? <laughs> so I was very slow in my journey. But, um, but once I started to grapple with that, as soon as you see it, it's everywhere, right? And, oh, my and, God. Yeah, you know, this is crazy. This is yes. um, and so examining the, the ways in which I had failed and the, the learning that I needed to go on. You know, I, I run a women in tech event um, here in Auckland called Refactor. And we have these events um, that, you know, networking and inspiring speakers and so on. 
And I ran that event for, I don't know, three years in the least accessible venue in Auckland. It was down like a rickety set of stairs. There was no way to get to it. Like it was just, and it, I mean, when I finally worked that out, no one even pointed it out to me. I just said, like one day I was reading a piece and I suddenly went, what have I done? <laughs> you know? And you have to go on that journey and yeah. learn that stuff. And you can only do it through listening. And, and I think as much as Twitter has um, done some terrible and dangerous things, for me, it's been one of the most amazing resources for learning, right? Because I can follow voices that I would never otherwise. And that has been, and that has been the rallying cry or the, the, the thing I hear the most from white people. I've never, I would never be exposed to these stories. Twitter has allowed, enabled me to hear stories that one society told me didn't exist. Two society told me if they did exist, they were discounted. Um, um, and all these things, and I get to follow, and I get to, now there's a problem with that, and again, that's emotional labor on our part, and you're learning um, from our work, but at least it's a platform, and that's why I, I really, it really bothers me when you get these these hetero cis white men, they don't, okay, I'm not even going to say hetero, because that's an assumption, but these white men who um, oh, Twitter's a shit show, you need to close this down, um, delete Facebook, don't say delete Facebook because in a lot of the parts of the world, that's how people connect to their loved ones now. And it, no one, grandma in Alabama is not going to um, shut down Facebook if her kids have moved to New Zealand and her grandkids are in New Zealand. That's the only way she gets to con- connect with them. That is such a privileged thing because, first of all, it demonstrates that you don't need this space. You, you're not invested in the community, one. And also, you could probably go make your own shit. You know, yeah. you can go build your own thing. And the, uh, the other thing, which I have only just started thinking about this week, I was listening to Rukmini Pandey, who's a, she's a fan scholar who writes on race and fandom. And um, I was listening to her on a podcast this week, and she was talking about Tumblr and the change to the terms of service there in December, which about meant sex. No longer, yeah, no longer adult content permitted on the mm-hmm. platform. And so everyone in fandom is sort of wrestling with what that means and if there needs to be another great migration to a different platform, which will enable us to share, um, you know, art and writing and so on that might have adult content in it. But one of the interesting points she made about Tumblr was um, it's a platform which permits disagreement in a way that closed spaces like, uh, you know, fandom slacks or discords or any of these sort of closed platforms um, don't permit. Because when you create a, a closed system, the first rule is usually be nice to one another. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. kindness is seen as the sort of the bare minimum. Uh, whereas on Tumblr, you don't have to be kind. You can just present your argument as angrily or as passionately or however you want and say, look, this show is racist. This thing has happened. This is sexist. I feel like this is homophobic. And people might disagree with you. You might mm-hmm. get trolling. There might be vitriol that comes back in your direction. But you don't have to ask anyone's permission. Yes, that's to, what I like about Twitter. <laughs> yeah, Twitter's the same. Facebook, also the same. Mm-hmm. And so I think when people say, oh, get out of those spaces, it's, that's a much more nuanced question for mm-hmm. people who are trying to do this work. Because exactly. it's one of the few places where you just can say yeah. what you want. Um, and, and for those of us who are still on a really steep learning curve, 
it's amazing because you get to you have access to these opinions in ways that the mainstream media are never going to share. Exactly, exactly, because they're still trying to be civil. Um, that's the that's the um, the you know the rule of the day is be civil. It's it's like you no know, civility is optional for white people, and it's been how you've expected marginalized communities to manage our behaviors. And again, we're not doing it anymore. So that's been like the ooh, what the hell's going on? This is a whole different thing, and we're called all kinds of names, and it's like. But you, oh, I get it. Yeah. All right. Do you, do you not see the hypocrisy in any of this? You don't see, yeah. you, you don't. I mean, the and fact I, that I, the U.S. president is upset because and says he's insulted because um, the Washington, uh, Washington Post and New York Times said that the FBI um, investigated him for being an agent of Russia. And yet the entire time that um, Obama was in office, you said this man was not a U.S. citizen. Yeah, but he's insulted. Yeah, it's just like the level of hypocrisy in in um, in privilege, particularly white privilege, is so interesting to unravel mm-hmm. um, and to get people who are saying it to to really see. Because they again, that's why white white liberals are just like the bane of my existence um, because they think they're doing a great job. They that you know I'm doing the work; it's happening, and they don't see how they're causing harm. And this is what's happening in these organizations. This is what's happening in, in Girl Develop It. This is what's happening in, in, in Stack Overflow. This is what's happening in these organizations when you have um, these white individuals who continue to try to speak on behalf of marginalized. You don't know what we need. You haven't asked us. And when we tell you, you do go into white fragility mode um, and then and, and you're not listening, you're not learning. Yeah, and that that comes back to not having diversity in the room, you know, at the senior management level and or not creating an environment of safety where those individuals can say, this is wrong. We shouldn't Mm -hmm. be doing this. This is going to have this impact. This is the wrong strategy. And it's both of those components, I think, that is the only way to change. Yeah, you just echo what I, yeah, I agree, Sasha. This is like, and this is the hard work. Is this, but again, if you're thinking, if you thought beyond your products and services and thought as a business, growing a business, building a business is hard work. If you thought about this as part of the things that you do to grow a business, then it would be, oh, par for the course. Just like you said, you would put resources, you give the individuals who are in charge of moving these initiatives forward the, the autonomy to do it without having to go back to the board or whatever to get permission and all these other things that, um, that speak the, and scream very loudly. Yeah, huh? The too hard argument is nonsense. It's not too hard. And <laughs> even if it were, this is an industry that is built around solving hard problems. Yes, exactly. To Mars. Like if, if we think we can solve that, then yes. cars that drive themselves or any of these other yes. technical problems, then we can solve this. It's yes. just that it's not a priority. Yeah. Uh, well, it's increasingly becoming a priority, particularly with the call out culture and the, and the reputations being destroyed. Now people are like, oh, shit. Yeah. The PR side and the financial side. I mean, this is an industry that, you know, for better or worse, is driven by money. And yep. um, and as I said earlier, you know, the data shows us that that's that that's going to be the one of the levers to change. And, you know, as someone who is investing in early stage startups. You know, one of our projects last year was to write to all of the companies in our portfolio and say, we, this is a priority for us as investors. Mm-hmm. So we want to know how you're measuring it. We want to know where you're at in the process, how you're um, tracking your progress, because that falls to us as investors 
to hold the, the yes. company responsible. Um, and that's self-motivated because we think that the companies will perform better if they do those things. Um, and I think as venture capitalists in the US who hold all this power through their checkbooks, start they to grab- power to, Yeah, they have the power to force these issues. You're absolutely yeah. right. You're absolutely yeah. right. So in our final moments, what would you like to leave the audience with? Um, I think the main thing that I'm sort of focusing on this year is how can we create environments where people want to be part of the tech sector? Like I still, I still believe in it as an industry. I still believe that it has world-changing power. Well, we know it has world-changing yeah. power. It's destroying democracy. But I, st- I still feel hopeful about its power to change. And so what I don't want to do is fall into this hole of negativity about it being a terrible place to work about everything we build having these terrible um, influences and impacts. And and so how can we inspire the next generation to not look at tech as something to be avoided, Mm -hmm. but as something that they want to be a part of? And for me, that's about trying to find the companies that are doing the work, trying to find the investors that are doing the work, like Alan Hamilton at Backstage Capital, you know, like trying to find the people that are really making change and tell those stories, tell those yes. stories, as, you know, in addition to the call outs and the negativity mm-hmm. to try and lift up the people who are doing it differently. And, um, you know, in the, in the super fan talk that I was giving last year, looking at that example of Pinterest and how they had built out a, a skin color feature for their platform. And it's like, let's tell those stories of the ways in which companies are thoughtfully and mindfully attacking these problems and doing it um, carefully with the community in mind and making changes that are positive, if we can start to tell some of those stories, then I think that that's going to have a, a real impact as well. And I totally agree with you because on two, two issues, I feel like I have damn fucking superpowers in tech because as a black woman, I to have created this space for myself, only in tech could I have created this space for myself. Um, there, I would have had to go through find channels that didn't weren't apparent for me, um, convince the gatekeepers that I could get in and all these other things. In tech, I could create my own space. And I love that. And it's in, and I, this is the one space where when we talk about um, generational wealth, uh, wealth of other, uh, of marginalized, where we can exponentially impact positively those mm-hmm. things. Um, and also, yes, I believe in, um, highlighting, screaming out the people who are doing great things. Because what the problem is, again, when I say I have a mic now, you don't get to be the only one talking. And that's been the issue. The people with the mic have been the ones spreading the vitriol and everything else. And now you have people who are like, no, you're not going to be the only one talking right now. Um, and I have this story to tell. I can remember at the end of, not the end of, all of 2017 was when I was traveling all over, speaking all over, but I was just really, if you look at some of my old tweets and, and did this on Facebook a lot, it was every day for 365 days, I, it, I would just share a good story, the good news, just share good news. I didn't care what it was. I was sharing good news because it was just so much negative. But what I recognize is that it, it isn't so much negative. Um, there, the positive so much, so outweighs the negative. It's just that the negative has a bigger microphone, a bigger platform. And, but we're, we're, we're gaining, we're gaining. Yeah. So thank you so much, Sasha. This has been a great conversation. Thank you. It's been wonderful. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Hashtag Causing Podcast. 
And I'd like to thank all our current sponsors of the podcast and the hashtag Call the Scene Movement. Of course, we strongly encourage everyone to become an individual sponsor of the hashtag Call the Scene community. Just visit the website at hashtag Call the Scene.com to sign up today. On behalf of everyone here at hashtag Call the Scene, we'd like to thank you again for listening to today's show and have a wonderful day. <laughs>